Do you know what it's like to preach your last sermon and the, try to prepare? My, my roommate and my mother were with me in the cafe as we were sitting down, and I was just like constantly like this, like head and hands, like, God, what do you say? You know, what do you, what do you want your last words to be? And so that's, that's what I was faced with. But because it's the end of 2019, I thought, I'll preach a word that will set us up for 2020. So what, what do we need on our hearts as we begin to shift into a new year? And so if you are taking notes today, the title of my sermon is Hope for the New Year. Hope for the new year. Um, and hope is a really big word. There's so much in the Bible about hope. And, uh, and again, so it's like, what do you, where do you start? What do you do? And we have a great passage in Luke that talks about the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the center of Christian faith. He is the hope of all humanity. And so it's about the coming of Jesus. Mary gets um, told by an angel that she's going to have a son who is the son of God. And then we also have a story about John the Baptist coming and that that's also a miraculous story of a miraculous pregnancy. And then these two women meet and both of them have these prophetic songs. They sing songs of praise to God for what God is about to do in faith that he's going to fully complete it, even though they haven't seen it yet, based on the miraculous pregnancies that are taking place. And so today's passage is going to be Luke 67 to 75, which is Zechariah's song. It's Zechariah's song that he sings and prays to the Lord. So you can go ahead and, and turn there, but I'll kind of set us up a little bit. Oh, sorry, Luke, what did I say? Yes, Luke 1. Sorry, guys. It's in Luke 1, the very, very beginning of Luke. Luke 1, verses 67 to 75. Mm. So you can go ahead, put your bookmark there, keep it there, and then we'll, we'll turn back to it in just a second. So I know for all of us, if you've been part of this church since the beginning of the year in January, we've been through a lot. At the beginning of this year, we weren't even in this space. We were in a completely other space, which was also just a miraculous provision of God. And then this came along and we moved in here with an amazing partnership with the Korean ministry heart house who owns this building. And beyond that, we also started community groups for the first time in a long time to be able to study the word of God together in homes throughout Seoul. That was an amazing place. We've grown our ministry teams. We've done a lot of things this year that are very, very um, worthy of celebration, worthy, worthy of celebration. And I was tempted to just go like, we have so much to be thankful to God for. Let's just praise God straight through. But it's not as simple as that because Amidst all of the rejoicing, there were also a lot of goodbyes. There were a lot of hardships. There were a lot of uncertain moments. And so there was a struggle that happened as well. And so some of us may be excited because for me, I graduated, like, praise God, three years of sleepless nights, and I have a degree, you know? But at the same time, I have a future ahead of me. Like, what do I do with a degree? Where is God calling me, you know? No one knows tomorrow. And so that in itself can be uh, either a source of excitement or a source of dread. And what happens to us is based on the fact that we can't know the future, we try to know the future by looking to the past. And so based on the type of year we had in 2019, that's how we interpret 2020. A lot of us will look back and, well, 2019 was really hard, so 2020 will be just as hard. And we kind of have this sense of apathy that nothing is going to change. Or some of us will be like, 2019 was really hard, and so, man, it has to be a good year because I'm not redoing that again, you know? And then we hit another really rough spot, and we're like, it's never going to end. 
And some of us are like, well, 2019 was great, so it's just up and up from here. 2020 will be even better. You know, glory to glory. We say that all the time, but what does that even mean? And so it's not as, it's not too simple for us to look towards the future and know how to orient ourselves if we're just using the past, because the past is not going to be tomorrow. What we can do is look to the nature of God, look to what he's done for us, and then begin to trust in his word. Right. And the, unfortunately, in our culture, what complicates this, as Christians, we know we're meant to go to the word of God. We know we're called to trust in him. And yet we have a culture that says, trust in yourself. Trust in self-improvement. Buy a self-improvement book. Your 10 ways to get organized. Your Marie Kondo, your life, you know? What show can I watch on Netflix? What can I Google? What book can I buy? I have a new three-step plan. I have a new six months get rich or get yourself out of debt. You know, I mean, for real, we immediately go to the resources in our culture before we go to the word of God. And so we have to be able to begin to reorient ourselves and say, word of God first, and then self-help books, you know? Right, so that's the goal of this sermon. We are going to orient ourselves in the word of God, and then we're entering the new year. So if you open up to Luke 1, verse 67 through 75, it begins like this. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies And from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Amen. This is such a beautiful, beautiful song of praise. He begins by saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And the first thing that you notice is that God saves. And my first point for us today is we have hope in 2020. We have hope forever because God saves. God is a God who chooses to save. And you can see it over and over again. 68, redemption. 69, salvation. 71, that we would be saved. And it continues, verse 74, that being delivered. And if you even go further into this song, because I cut it a little bit short, it continues talking about salvation, forgiveness, freedom. That this is a God who delights in saving. And it's just said over and over and over Again, that everything since creation has been so that God could be there for his people, that he could be there to draw near, that he could be there to rescue, that he could be the sustaining support of all that he's created. And it just takes us orienting ourselves to him to know that. But obviously, we can't understand what salvation is unless we're understanding what we're being saved from. When we hope for a good year, When we hope that we are going to see success, have victory and make new friends and, you know, whatever it is in our day to day that we really need, we forget that getting there means we're coming from somewhere, that there's an origin, there's a starting point. 
So if you're going to be saved, you are in a position needing saving. And because we are not God, we don't have an eternal character that learns things perfectly, 100%. Like, you know, all the things I learned in seminary, I will probably forget half of them by the end of next year, right? Unfortunately, life is learning and then going back and relearning and going back and relearning until some of it sticks, you know, hopefully. (laughs) And so we're in this position that because we don't have this eternal nature, we're not robots, we're not computer programs, we're people. And we're flawed people. We have to go through this process of recognizing, even though I meet successes, I ultimately will again meet failures. And even though good things are ahead of me, I again will meet trials. And that it's a cycle that I will perpetually need saving. Perpetually need saving, but praise God, God is a God who saves. Now, it's really interesting if we look at the context of this song. Zechariah is prophesying this miraculous salvation through the son that is about to be born after 400 years of silence from God. And why are there 400 years of silence? Well, we have to go way, way back into the story to the establishment of Israel. Israel gets established as a nation that God is putting his name on. So he's basically saying, I'm putting my name on you so that the world can know who I am. Live in right relationship with me so that people will know who I am. Experience my grace, experience my righteousness, experience my love, that they will also come into relationship with me. This is how he starts by establishing Israel in a place of covenant. He gives them the Ten Commandments. We've Most of us know the Ten Commandments. Very basic things, like don't kill your neighbor. Wow. God, why did you have to tell us that? You know, these days there's a very common like perception, like I'm a good person. You're not a good person if someone has to tell you not to kill your neighbor. You know? And it's even though most of us have never gotten to that place, we've gotten angry enough that we could have. Right? And only grace of God has kept us from doing something like that. Really and truly, because by nature, we're not good. So there's this list of 10 commandments that God's like, just try to live by this, just these 10 things, right? And at this very, very priority of them was like not to have any other gods before God himself, Yahweh. And Israel was like in a position of faith at that moment, because if you remember pause. If you remember the last time I preached, I preached about going in to take your promise or the, yeah, recently I preached about that. And it was a position where Israel had to trust in God and go fight their enemies who are much larger and greater than them in order to take the land that God was going to give to them. And they did at this point, they had already been through that and they had conquered two like nations, two areas. And then They're about to go in and take the rest of the promised land. So they're in a position of faith. God, we won't have any other gods before you because we just saw you conquer these peoples. And we want you to be with us as we go to conquer the other peoples. So we have a very strong motivation and we have evidence. And so we're going to lean on that. But at the end of Deuteronomy, God actually tells Moses, Moses, you're about to pass away. And you're about to die on a mountaintop. And the people that you have shepherded are going to break my commandments, break my covenant, and walk away from me. And it's like, what? 
But you just said that they were going to conquer and get the promised land. And their faith in who God was and living by him was very short-lived. And so God actually says, this people will forsake me. He uses the word forsake. They will forsake me. And then it says, and so I, because they have gone after other gods, I will forsake them and turn my face away from them. And then it's actually really, really in the same passage, it's really close to the verse that we always quote saying that God will never leave you nor forsake you. And then it says, I will forsake them. I was like, what are you trying to say, God? What does that mean? What kind of paradox is this that you say that you will never forsake and then you forsake? It's because he has an eternal plan to not forsake. He has an eternal plan to save. He has an eternal plan to redeem. But in the midst of trying to get Israel's attention, he turns his face away from them so they know what it's like to live without God. And sometimes we will go through that as well, where we don't sense God's presence. Things aren't really working out for us, but it's to help us know that we are not able to do it on our own and that we need to lean on God. And so there's this portion where he says, I will forsake them. He sends prophets for Israel to turn back. They turn back for a short amount of time. They go astray again. He sends another prophet and the cycle kind of repeats until finally they go into exile. Babylon comes and decimates them. And makes them captives. And then, just after they thought, God will rescue us. Instead, another nation comes in and decimates them. Persia. And then, another, like 100 years later, Greece comes in and decimates them and makes them captives. They're constantly being captives over a period of nearly 400 years. And throughout their captivity, God does not send one prophet to speak to them. He already told them it would come. He told them that they would walk away, that they would feel forsaken, and that there would be, like, they would seem to have no hope. But then he promises them hope. In Hosea, it says, well, okay, I have to explain Hosea. Hosea marries a prostitute, and the prostitute represents us. It represents our propensity to constantly wander away and break relationship with someone. And he tells Hosea, you're going to be faithful to her no matter how many times she walks away from you. You're going to continue to love her. She's going to bear you children. And she's going to walk away from you even still. And you're going to continue to love her. So she bears him a child. And God tells Hosea, name her Lo Ruhamah, which means I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. And then the verse later, he says, yet I will have compassion on the house of Judah and I will save them not by bow or sword or war, not by horses and cavalry, but by the Lord, their God. He has another child right after that. And then it says, um, Gomer is her name. Gomer conceived and gave birth to a son. And God said, name him Loami. For you are not my people. Ami means my people. Lo is not. Lo, Ami, not my people. And I am not your God. And these are meant to represent the descendants of Israel because they're walking away in idolatry. They're choosing to make God not their God. So he says, you're not my people. It's this rejection. And then, a verse later, it says, and yet... The number of Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And so there's this 
heart of God to eternally redeem, no matter how much he's rejected by the people that he loves and for time steps back to help them know who they are without him. There's a heart to eternally come in and eternally bring them unto himself. And Zechariah, as he's beginning to prophesy the song after 400 years of exile and silence, he sees this accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. And this is the source of his rejoicing. No longer will we ever be forsaken. No longer will we be unable to turn to God because now God has sent himself to be able to turn to him. God has sent his son and his spirit for us to be able to turn to him. And so for us in a modern day context, this means when I am insufficient and I can't get the job done correctly, when I say to myself, I'm not good enough, I'll never be enough. When I say to myself, I'm such a failure, I won't amount to much, or I don't have enough resources, I'm full of lack. That these things are not the defining factor for us. Because there's a God factor that has to be taken into account. There is a loving God who has to be part of the story. So that if we achieve anything in 2019, or if we achieve anything in 2020, it is in light of God's miraculous work, working within us. Any security in spite of our indecision, security and good results in spite of procrastination, any life-changing events, it's because something miraculous is at work by the very grace of God. And yes, we do face the consequences of our mistakes, but that doesn't mean that God won't redeem us if we turn to him. It doesn't mean that he won't deliver us out of some sticky situations. It doesn't mean that he won't save us, that in his timing, as we turn to him, he turns to us. As we turn to him, he's ready, he's there, he's waiting. And, I, and this is the nature of God to want to save, but the second part of this nature, it's like so intimately linked, is that it's because he's faithful. So the second point today is we have hope because of his great faithfulness. This is the God factor, that God by his very nature cannot deny himself, which is just hard for us to understand because you and I, we say we're going to do one thing and the next day we don't do it, right? So like tomorrow I will do my laundry. And then tomorrow I say tomorrow I will do my laundry, right? And that's, you know, I use laundry as an example a lot because I constantly put it off. But there are other simple examples. I can get onto the subway and be so annoyed like I was yesterday, at the person who zipped in front of me and took the seat. When I was waiting there for 10 minutes and they were waiting there for 30 seconds, you know? And like, how dare you? You should wait in line patiently. And then the next day I'm waiting at the subway again and I zip in front of someone to steal a seat. Right? We're very inconsistent. We have ideals and we do not fulfill them ever. (laughs) And if we do fulfill them, it's kind of an accident. (laughs) Or we, it's an accident or we learn discipline. And discipline, learning how to be faithful to something and grow in something is very difficult for us. And it's very full of trials and full of troubles and full of failures. And by nature, we reject that because we want comfort and we want happiness. We want ease. And so we don't want to go through that. 
So either our successes are an accident or they're out of discipline, but unless we've been walking in a lifestyle that helps us develop discipline, then it's just God is giving us little gifts. Grace. Here's some grace. You can develop discipline. (laughs) Here's some grace. Anyway, God is faithful, but we are not. Second Timothy verse chapter two, verse 13 actually says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He has an eternal nature and by the fact that it's eternal, it cannot change. And so Hebrew 10 verse 23 encourages us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, unfortunately, even holding unswervingly to hope is difficult for us because we judge things by our circumstances, which is why we need the word of God to keep us in this unswerving hope. An example of this kind of faithfulness is portrayed in the movie Hook. So (laughs) I think most of us have probably seen the movie Hook before. And um, so basically, it's about the story of Peter Pan, about a kid who doesn't want to ever grow up, and who's, yeah, he has a dad, right? He has a dad who is going to take care of this um, young boy, and this young boy is about to go taken off to the world of Never Never Land, where he's going to experience so much fun and be apart from his father, and it's all going to be great and every child's dream. But in the meantime, he has a relationship with his father, And his father is a very, very busy working man. He has a very, very big business. It's very successful. And he's constantly trying to get the next thing done so that his child will be provided for, his family will be provided for. But he makes a promise to the young boy, like, I'll be at your baseball game. But then the kid has a baseball game and his dad is not there. And the kid is crushed, and that's why he, one of the reasons why he chooses to run away from home and want to stay away from home is because his father wasn't able to keep the simplest promise of going to a baseball game. And when you watch the movie, you're so angry at the father. You couldn't put down work for one second to go to a baseball game. It's just an hour, you know, or maybe two hours. Like you couldn't give your son that much attention. And we get angry at this inability to be faithful to his son. But that's us in our inability to be faithful to God, in our inability to be faithful to each other, in our inability to be faithful in just the tiniest things. And God is the exact opposite of that father. He doesn't need to be running around and working like crazy to provide because he is the source of everything. So sometimes we have this image of like, God is too busy for me. God's focused on something else. God's not with me, but that's not true. He's, he can't be too busy because he's the ultimate source of all life. He can't be too busy for you because he's already planned out everything before creation started. So he's not distracted. He's there. He's focused. He's waiting for you to draw to him and he is there to respond. And so we have a father who's always there to say, yes, I'm here for you. If we simply say, God, I'd like you to be there. And there's also another video that if you haven't seen Hook, maybe you've seen this video of a Japanese dog who loses his owner. The owner passes away and the dog always used to come out 
and wait at the train station for the owner to come home. And then would go home with his owner. And after the owner passes away, the dog can't recognize that this is a, a life change, that this is a stage that cannot be returned to, like that things are now eternally different. And so this dog, for years, and I don't remember the amount of time, but something like 10 years or 15 years, has faithfully, every day, gone to the train station and waited. Waited for his master to come home. And then will go back and rest and then come back to the train station and wait. And wait for the arrival of this person that he loves. Constantly being disappointed. Constantly not having anything to confirm his faith or his hope that his master will be there. But he comes day after day. And as you watch this video, you're heartbroken. How can he keep coming back? How can he be so loyal? How can he not get discouraged? Why is he constantly there? And even though it's just a dog... It represents part of God's character to us. This loyalty that will continue to wait for us. And say, I'm waiting for you to come to me. You can walk away. You can go take a vacation and try to live another life. But I love you and I will always come here waiting for your arrival. I'll always be here. It doesn't matter how long it takes you to come. I'm going to come and I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait and I'm going to wait for you. And this is the eternal faithfulness of God. And part of this faithfulness is for God's glory. Part of it's for us to know the love of God. But part of it is for God's glory that no other God can keep his word. No other God can speak and have it come to fruition. Buddha can't do it. Allah can't do it. No Hindu God out of the hundreds of them can keep his word. No new age philosophy of something within myself can accomplish all that I need in life. None of that, nothing can be faithful. Only God, Yahweh, our God, can do this. So he's one of a kind. And his faithfulness is a confirmation to his glory. That he is absolutely sovereign and God above all. But faithfulness is not a character trait on its own. And so we could read the passage of Zechariah where it says he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets and that he promised to the fathers and he remembered his holy covenant and that he swore on oath. And so because he did those things, he chose to make a covenant. He chose to swear on oath. He chose to make a promise that he's choosing to fulfill them now. But we have to ask, why did you make a promise Why did you make a covenant? Why did you swear on oath? It's not for the fact, not just for the fact of the covenant he made, that he's returning to it and remembering it. It's because of his mercy. And this is the focus of this entire passage. If you look at verse 72, the purpose, why has God saved? Why has God remembered? What was the origin in the first place for this promise? To show mercy. Romans 15 verses 8 to 9 says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth. Basically, Christ came as a man under the law. On behalf of truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So that 
Christ came to fulfill the covenant. Christ came to fulfill the law on our behalf when we are incapable of doing it. So basically, Christ took our test for us, got straight A's, and then gave the straight A's to us, swapped out all our failing grades. And then it says in Romans 15:8-9, after it says, Christ came to confirm the promises given to the fathers, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. That the origin of all of this goodness is God's mercy. Now we ask the question, what is mercy? It's actually really difficult to understand when you're just reading through the Bible. Like mercy is this ambiguous concept. What is mercy? Mercy is undeserved favor. It's favor that comes from God's good will towards man and God's good purposes for man. It is God's loving resolve. God's loving resolve that he is eternally resolved to love you. He's eternally resolved to be in favor towards you as a child of God. It does take stepping into that relationship as a child of God to experience that eternally. But that mercy is there for everyone for a time. There is mercy of God available to anyone who will draw to God. And those who become children of God have this mercy forever. And that this mercy, being part of God's loving resolve, is to know God without fear, as it says in verse 74, that we might serve him without fear. That because his nature is merciful, he's not out to punish us. He's not out to make us pay for our mistakes. He's not out to give us a hard time because of our misunderstandings or our failures. He, mercy, is God's loving resolve to move us forward into his presence. To move us deeper into relationship and to overcome the world. It's his resolve to remove all obstacles and give us the benefit of the doubt whenever we fail. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Mercy has nothing to do with any good thing you can do. Christianity is not some moral religion where you try to be a good person. Repeat, Christianity is not about being a good person. Yes, we need to live lives that exalt Christ. That's good for us and good for others, but that's not the goal. The goal is not for you to live a flawless life because you cannot. The goal is for you to strive to live a life that pleases God and to lean on his mercy towards you. That when you fail, you lean on God. That when you succeed, you lean on God. And that everything is attributed to his loving kindness towards you. And that that continual growth in that is possible because of the Holy Spirit. We get to be renewed in Christ's life by the Holy Spirit that begins to create within us a nature that's able to do those things. But it doesn't come from us, ever. It comes from God's loving mercy. 
In Hosea 6, 6, which is quoted twice by Jesus in the New Testament, it says, I desire steadfast love, which is mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God is not trying to make you pay constantly. You messed up, you better pay for it. You made the wrong decision, then I expect something in return. Like, you want to come worship me? Then you need to do so without error. It says, I desire to love you steadfastly. I desire to love you with mercy, no matter what. That this is the source of his faithfulness. This is the source of his salvation to us. And that that is ultimately the source of our hope. It's because God delights in mercy that God chooses to bless us freely and abundantly. In John chapter 10, as it talks about the good shepherd, it says, Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it abundantly so. And then we have my favorite portion of scripture, Ephesians. I was like, I have to include Ephesians in this sermon because it's my favorite and it's the last time that I get to preach. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. If you'd like to turn there, go ahead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. Six beautiful verses. It begins like this in verse 4. But God. Meaning but. But in spite of your failures. But in spite of the words you spoke to your friend yesterday. But in spite of your procrastination. But in spite of your failed business plans. But in spite of everything, God being rich in mercy out of his own nature, not for anything that you've done or can do because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, unable to respond to him, unable to contribute in a healthy way to society, unable to be alive, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's mercy, immeasurable riches of grace and kindness Favor upon favor upon favor. For by grace you have been saved through faith. A simple turning and leaning upon the Lord. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That getting to participate in this hope. Getting to live in the security of a faithful God getting to be lavished by the mercy of his love, even when we don't deserve it, is a simple turning and leaning on God in every situation. And that the salvation, the forgiveness, this tender mercy of God is given to us simply because it's part of his purpose to love us and to delight in us. So Hebrews 4.16 says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help us in our time of need. Church, we're here today because God has extended us mercy again and again and again. And 2020, we still have that access again and again and again in our time of need to say, God, I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. I need your freedom. I need your discipline. And that that is how we get to orient ourselves towards God. So we're going to take a time to pray. And I invite you to do what's comfortable to you. To stand up or to sit down, to pull out a journal, whatever is comfortable to you. And I'm going to read a little bit of scripture and I just want you to respond to scripture. first verse is Philippians 2.13. As you go into 2020, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I'd like to you to put your name into that. For it is God who works in, say your name, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The next verse is Romans 8, 31 to 33. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who will then condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And the last one is Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that in every situation, you are the source of us to be able to believe in you. You're the source of our overcoming. You're the source of our blessings. You're even the source of our discipline. But for your good purposes, God, you continually love us. 
and call us unto yourself. God, no matter what happens in 2020, we are thankful that you are working in us, that you are pleading and praying on our behalf, that you are waiting for us, God, and that you who have begun this work in us and continually are working in us will bring it to completion. So God, we simply say thank you that we've made it this far. And we trust you as you take us forward. We trust in your unending mercy, faithfulness, and your love towards us, God, the hope we have in your salvation. God, we ask that you would simply help us to turn to you again and again and again.